Hello, welcome to One More Time, a wind band podcast. I'll be your host for today. My name is Marcelo Champion, and for today's episode, we will be discussing composition, performance, and education in context with the integration of sound and music technologies. Today's story was also produced by myself. To begin, I'd like to introduce to you Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archive and Center for American Music here at the University of Illinois. And for today, Scott will tell us about the relationship between Sousa and one of his former bandmates, Arthur Pryor, as well as their differing perceptions of recording technologies amidst the changing musical landscape in the early 20th century. Arthur Pryor is, as one reviewer described, the Paganini of the trombone in the early 20th century. And he was an extraordinary musician. You know, he, he grew up surrounded by music. Um, apparently his father, not only a bandmaster, but was Arthur's first instructor of the trombone. And Arthur's early career begins not on a slide trombone, but a valve trombone. And I suspect given the personality of Arthur and um, also his interest in pushing the envelope, suspect the, the valve trombone didn't quite cut it for him. And the slide was what he would prefer to use because he could do things on it that were silly and funny that he couldn't quite do with the valve trombone. Of course, the Sousa Band is beginning to get ready for its major premiere, the World's Exposition in Chicago in 1892. And they're looking for another trombonist. Um, and um, word on the street is they've got this hotshot kid called Arthur, um, who the band should probably audition. Arthur Pryor walks into the rehearsal room in New York. He is just 22 years old. And um, he is introduced to Mr. Souza, and um, his hair is unkept, um, a little unkempt. And um, Mr. Uh, Souza basically says, well, you know, we'd like to hear you play. Would you like a moment or two to kind of warm up? And Arthur says, sure, not a problem. And then he begins to warm up. And his warm-up technique blew the socks off of everybody else in the band. And this is a kid doing lip slurs and flying all over the, the trombone, not only playing high notes that most of the other players envy, he's then playing pedal tones. And at that point, you know, the rest of the band says, hell, we don't need to hear anymore. Let's hire the guy and run with it. Um, and, you know, he plays with the Sousa Band between 1892 and um, 1903. Um, his first performances with the Sousa Band for the World's Exposition, he is not identified as a solo trombonist. He's just one of three guys playing in the band. Um, but he is introduced um, as a soloist for one of those performances during the World's Exposition, and the audience goes absolutely nuts. They have never heard the trombone played like this. And so suddenly Sousa takes note of the um, audience's response and literally begins to have Pryor play regularly as one of the lead soloists. Now, of course, we we think of Pryor as being, you know, essentially one of the solos of the band. And from 
1895 until 1903, um, he was, and also he was the assistant director of the Sousa Band, which is high praise. By 1903, Pryor is essentially um, being paid extraordinary amounts of money to play with the band. Um, during the 1903 tour of the Sousa Band of England, France, Belgium, Germany, Ireland, and Wales, um, Pryor is taking Europe by storm, and Pryor basically begins to think, you know, Sonos are prayed pretty well, but I really need to be paid a, a, a premium amount, and he suggested to Mr. Sousa that he should be paid as much as Mr. Sousa for his time with the band. Can only imagine Mr. Sousa's response, wait a minute, I'm the guy leading the band, why should my trombonist be paid as much as me to play with my band? And um, at the end of the 1903 tour, um, Sousa and Pryor could not come to a consensus in terms of what he should be paid and um, Pryor leaves the band after that tour. Um, and you would think at that point that um, Sousa and Pryor would not be good friends, in fact, actually would not be polite to one another. But as we begin to understand, um, Sousa had great respect for his, his exceptional musicians. And while he no longer had prior play in his band after 1903, the men stayed in close contact for the rest of their career. On, on my notes in this article that I'm referencing, Sousa did allow his band members to make recordings, and there's various recordings of the Sousa band. However, due to Sousa's preconception of recording technology being the menace of mechanical music, he obviously stepped out for these recording sessions and Arthur Pryor, in fact, conducted the band for most of them. Of the 1,770 commercial recordings that were made by the Sousa Civilian Band between 1892 and 1932, only eight of those recordings were actually recorded by the March King, and that's really important. Okay? All of the other um, recordings are predominantly recorded by Arthur Pryor and Walter B. Rogers for the Berliner Gramophone Company and the Victor Talking Machine Company, and Herbert L. Clark and Edwin G. Clark for the Edison Phonograph Company and the Victor Talking Machine Company. So, you know, begin to see um, these kinds of shifts. But you are correct, the, um, the rest of those recordings are, are not done by Sousa because he considered sound recording up till 1925 the mechanical menace of music, music performance. Wow, that's, that's a truly interesting perspective there. Um, so what is the reason for Sousa's disinterest in recording technologies and how did his mind change in the mid-20s as you had described? He was never happy with sound recording technology until 1929 when the Victor Orthophonic um, uh, Victrola first was produced. In fact, in 1925, it was demonstrated, and it was only at that time that Sousa said that recorded music now, and only now at that time, helped capture and reproduce the true 
public performance of, of wind bands and orchestras. So we find this real distinct pushback. And he, he was very adamant. Um, you know, early sound recording, cylinders and discs um, just were a shallow imitation of a live performance. And he was absolutely adamant that that was not a good thing. Wow, so ultimately Sousa disliked recording machines up until that point just due to the, uh, the lack of quality that a, a, a consumer would receive versus experiencing a live band setting at an auditorium or a concert hall. Um, absolutely. You have to remember, these are all analog recordings. If you look at pictures of this Sousa Marine Band um, recording for Columbia, you have a, a set of musicians sitting in chairs playing for a bank of recording devices that the only way to capture it was through these these acoustic horns. And he was right. Um, you think about it. I mean, imagine this. I'm, I'm sh I, I am hopeful you played at least one time the game where you took a piece of string, connected it to two tin cups or paper cups, you pulled these strings really tightly and you talked into them and you could hear each other. And it was true you could hear each other, but it was like you were talking through a, 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 a fog of sound. The quality was absolutely dreadful. From my research, it seems as though Pryor had a much different philosophy on recording technologies. And although it is true, quality was very much lacking back in the early 1900s and through the 1910s. Um, Pryor's philosophy from my research and notes, it seemed as though he viewed recording technology as a medium for which to increase your band's exposure and name throughout various different societies and communities. Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, there was an article in the Music Trades. That was the, um, the Music Trades was a, a, a publication produced in New York City. And um, on September 22nd, 1906, right at the height of a major lawsuit, um, Thomas Hedder Henderson, who's the vice president of the Perforated Music Roll Company, basically countered um, to Sousa's comment that, you know, mechanical music is destroying everything in terms of, um, you know, true musical art, um, argued that essentially, Lots of composers were using mechanical music, not only sound recordings, but piano rolls of their compositions to help sell the, um, the published music to larger audiences. So essentially, uh, you know, Arthur Pryor and many others were using um, sound recording technology, mechanically produce um, piano rolls to introduce people to their works. Arthur Pryor um, really embraced that. And to say that Mr. Souza did not, Mr. Souza was a sound businessman and he was always looking for vehicles to market his sheet music. Um, Arthur Pryor, um, he did not walk the straight and narrow of musical performance. He was always pushing the envelopes. You see that in all of his performances. Why not do that with sound recordings? And so he just grabbed a hold of it and ran with it. Thomas Edison you know, created this invention, um, which I, I still consider um, the greatest invention ever produced 
anywhere. With the invention of sound recording, we were able to, able to do something that had never been done before, and we have exploited the crap out of that in so many different ways. Oh, for sure. And it has basically helped um, increase rates of globalization and consumption of media throughout the past century. Absolutely. This brings me to my last talking point here and on my notes and according to my research and also based upon our, our discussion, Pryor left the Sousa band and after leaving the Sousa band, he became his own bandmaster, composer and conductor. And the Pryor band became one of the most prolific recording bands of the time. And I'm wondering if the differing philosophies of recording technologies had in any way, shape, or form some sort of an influence on Pryor's decision to depart? Or was it just purely mostly monetary, as you had described earlier? Well, we, 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 I need to clarify, maybe correct a misperception. Pryor did not leave the Sousa band because of Sousa's and Pryor's approach to sound recording. And quite frankly, Pryor left the Sousa band because he felt he should be paid as much, if not more, than Sousa. And Sousa just basically said, no, I mean, I'm sorry, you can't be paid more than me to play in my band. So essentially, Pryor left the Sousa band to form his own, largely out of a very practical need. He wanted to make a ton of money because he is essentially the Paganini of trombone and his approach to musical composition, we kind of miss that. He, he is as much a composer as he is a band arranger and performer, and he, he wanted to exploit that in, in very financial terms. Um, Pryor's approach to music, very popular. In the 1920s, um, you know, jazz is, is taking the world by storm, and quite frankly, Arthur embraced it. I mean, popular music, popular swing, um, ragtime, all of that, and that is not what Mr. Sousa is really interested in. Of course, Mr. Sousa takes an eventual retake on that for a short period of time. Um, but, you know, Arthur and Sousa are in two different planes. I mean, Sousa... Yeah, Arthur sounds a lot more adaptive and versatile. Yes, exactly. He is. He, he is producing and wanting to reach out to people with the music that people want to hear. And I, I'm afraid by the 1920s, you know, the Sousa March, the Sousa Mystique was beginning to lose itself. Um, so, you know, Arthur is just going in an entirely different direction, and he's following the country. Um, Sousa tries to recapture that, and I confess he doesn't do such a hotsy-totsy job at connecting with those new tastes. If you would like to know more about Dr. Scott Schwartz's work for the preservation of American music, it's one quick Google search away. Type in Sousa Archive, Illinois, and the first two links will take you right there. For this edition of Two Minute Rehearsal Techniques, I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Nicholas Waldron, the Associate Director of Bands at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, California. Prior to this position, Dr. Waldron has experienced teaching at the University of Kansas School of Music and the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University. One of my quick rehearsal fixes um, is to attack intonation by first fixing balance. Um, I go about this, you know, we're tuning a chord, and instead of going down the line or tuning people individually, which can usually stall a rehearsal's progress, especially early on as we're learning new music, um, I like to 
again, approach it by balance. So the whole band will tune, we'll stop, we'll say, everyone, please listen to the horn, the alto, second clarinet, second, third trumpet, etc. Those uh, instruments kind of in the middle of our staff or in the middle of their range. And then we'll play again. Um, and usually that fixes uh, enough intonation that we can move on and gives us something that we can go back to then to build off of. Um, and all I'm doing is engaging the students' ears and getting them outside of their own part. A student may be playing the root of the chord, but if they start to listen into the third or the fifth, they are usually able to balance their part and balance their volume in relationship to the other members um, of the chord as well. Um, in addition to that, and sometimes intonation is just purely balanced. We frequently say we need less of the third, we need more of the fifth. Um, and some of that is overcoming the scoring, and some of that is overcoming the, the players and the volume that they're playing at. So lowering certain voices without actually fix, fixing intonation um, can sometimes be a big help. It helps clarify everyone's chord, um, chord role and their tendencies. Um, and then after that, I will go and dig into intonation if needed, if that needs to happen two or three rehearsals down the road, depending how long our concert cycle is. Um, but for the, the middle of the road rehearsal, as we're improving intonation and engaging ears, which is the most important, um, we want to teach the students to tune every note, just not play square in tune with their tuner. So uh, phrasing it in a way that engages the ears um, seems to show the most reward and the most improvement um, from rehearsal to rehearsal. And for today's story regarding the integration of sound technologies in music, I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Eli Fieldsteel, who currently serves as a director of the Experimental Music Studios here at the University of Illinois, Paul Rudolph, a University of Illinois alumni who is the founder of Glank Percussion, a contemporary percussion group that utilizes various found objects, as well as a composer for Sesame Street, and lastly, Matthew Black, who has an extensive resume as serving as an educator, composer, and a technologist for various marching groups across the country, ranging from high school all the way up to drum corps and indoor groups. My name is Eli Fieldsteel. I've been assistant professor of music composition and theory for uh, four years, and I'm the director of the Experimental Music Studios, which is a, a suite of six uh, studios in the music building for uh, electroacoustic composition and uh, recording and sort of general experiments with electronic sound. And uh, I think that's about it. I'm a, I'm a composer specializing in uh, interactive music and audio programming. My name is Paul Rudolph. Um, I'm a composer, musician, uh, instrument builder, uh, engineer, uh, recordist, um, audio editor, um, and sometimes welder. Um, <laughs> I went to University of Illinois for music education as my undergrad degree, and then I went back to school and uh, worked on my um, master's in composition and arranging. I work a uh, multiple, multitude of jobs, but uh, my main job is on Sesame Street, where I have a bunch of, I wear a bunch of different hats. I'm the vocal music director. I am a recordist for all the vocal music and also ADR, looping, dialogue and such. Um, and I'm also the on-set music director. And then I do um, off-site music direction as well for live shows, for the Macy's Parade, etc. 
Um, and then I also compose for the show. I write a couple songs per season. I do a lot of work on the digital end for the for the YouTube content that we do, composition wise. And then on my own, uh, I also work for other companies. I worked for um, and still work for Nature Cat, which is a PBS animation. Uh, produced by a good friend of mine, David Rudman, and his brother. Um, I do vocal music direction for that. Um, I also do off and on stuff for, you know, freelance composition for anyone who knocks on my door. And then I have my own percussion ensemble, Glank, and I created all the instruments for that out of found objects, mostly in the metallophone world. I play vibes in that, and uh, I love to run my vibraphone through all sorts of distortion and delays. I consider myself a, a percussionist when it comes to that. My name is Matthew Black. Um, I am the percussion director at Carmel High School. Um, I specialize in percussion pedagogy. I specialize in music technology, and I found a pretty lucrative career arranging and writing uh, percussion music for marching bands and doing electronic soundscape design for marching bands. Um, if you're unfamiliar with that concept, basically, uh, there's always been three idioms in the marching world, and that's been woodwinds, that's been brass and that's been percussion musically um our fourth idiom is the color garden now there's a fifth idiom which is uh the soundscape electronics and the amplification of all the sounds that are already on the field applying different sound effects etc um, and so with that we get to wear even more hats you know as a band director we wear so many hats to begin with whether it be fundraiser or marketer or uh, recruiter or whatever it be, um, the I get to wear some hats now as a system designer whenever I'm designing um, different audio systems that marching bands are going to deploy. I get to be um, an electronic sound designer. Um, I get to figure out how all those pieces are going to fit together without it just sounding like mud and a mess. My first question is, how did you get involved with electronics and music and composition in your respective field in general? I started to get seriously involved with uh, electronic music and technology around 2008 or 2009. I had been composing for quite a while before that. I started composing when I was in you know, high school or so mostly writing for uh, wind band um, and then kind of branching out into other acoustic mediums in, um, as an undergraduate student. And I went on to a master's degree in composition at the University of North Texas uh, starting in 2008. And uh, I sort of went there with the uh, expectation that I would um, just kind of focus more intensely on composing for large ensembles and things like that. But I met, uh, you know, some new students who were part of my cohort. I started connecting with some professors whose work was not really what I was used to. And the, the School of Music at, at the North, North Texas has just, um, you know, these really great facilities mm -hmm. for electroacoustic music. And it was just a world I wasn't really expecting. And so I... Um, I started um, uh, just hanging out with these students mostly and uh, listening to electroacoustic compositions. And it just, it was just really exciting and coding using a super collider programming language. And um, yeah, I ended up writing a piece for trumpet and live electronic sound. Um, yeah, that was my master's thesis. 
and that's that's gone on to get played from time to time uh, and kind of served as a jumping off point for a lot of other projects. And as I went on to the University of Texas at Austin for my doctorate, again, I was sort of thinking, okay, I've learned all this cool stuff with electronics. Now I'm going to return to um, uh, sort of the world of acoustic music and apply what I've learned and make new music. But again, I just I just found myself naturally gravitating towards uh, electronic practices and sort of got into interactive mm-hmm. music and sensor-based music and working with uh, dancers, choreographers, and video artists and just just really discovering this great world of possibilities that I had never really considered. After I got my doctorate, I had a one-year position at Ball State where I was um, substituting for um, uh, uh, Mike Pounds, who's a, a tenured faculty member who's on sabbatical. And so I covered his teaching load that year and um, that's, you know, I, I taught a class on human computer interface design and computer music and composition lessons and, and lots of stuff. And then after that, I got hired at the University of Illinois. And so I've been here um, as an assistant professor for four years. I, I worked for two composers in advertising music for, for 11 years out in L.A. before I got Sesame Street uh, job, the job in Sesame Street. Um, and they, you know, husband and wife composing team, phenomenal. They, they've been composing for 40 years now, Trivers Myers music. So first let me, I'll just do a, a brief glank kind of explainer. Um, my ensemble started in LA, uh, around 2001, basically as like a party percussion thing. <laughs> and where I would basically bring a sound system, PA system and a couple pre-recorded tracks, very, uh, some of them very sparse, just like dance stuff. And then I would have my friends, musicians and non-musicians just play my found object instruments very loosely. You know, we would just kind of ad lib and just have fun. So my, I, I started building instruments like in the nineties and just had fun creating instruments out of metal. And I, um, I love Blue Man Group, but I, 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 I think I subconsciously wanted to get away from plastic and PVC and really focus on metal. And I just, I had a bunch of metal pieces of junk in my quote unquote arsenal of stuff, like old LP tanks and things. And I was actually at a session, a, a session with those composers I mentioned, John and Liz, uh, Trivers Myers, and they hired a wonderful composer and I'll forget his name. It's Michael Fisher. If you asked him to bring his percussion gear to a session and you weren't specific, he would literally show up with a semi-trailer full of stuff. And on one uh, commercial in particular, they just said, we'd like some cool, like, odd, low-end percussion. And he brought in a what he called a whale drum, which was a huge metal tank, probably two and a half feet in diameter, maybe four feet tall, um, with, with tonal tongues cut into it. The whale drum and those sounds have been around for a long time. People have been experimenting with those for a long time. And because I came from U of I and, you know, the school of John Cage, <laughs> Sal Martirano, they were always looking for pushing the boundaries of finding unique, unique sounds. So when I heard that whale drum, which he played with like a giant, a super ball and a mallet, it was incredible. And I was like, I have LP tanks at home. I can do this. So I started cutting tongues into, you know, LP tanks using saw blades, artillery shells, all this stuff. And... Because of my marching background and being quote unquote anonymous in a drum line, I love having my players all look identical. So I came up with the clean room suit vibe and the mask as just a, it's a, it's literally a throwback to marching band and drum line. And Glank in particular, what I think sets us apart from, you know, Blooming Group and Stomp is that we include the audience in a way where the audience becomes part of the show and that they put on a mask, they put on a lab coat. They're 
creating a little shaker with an LED lighted as part of our big sit-down performance art show. Now, that show didn't happen until I really moved to New York and was able to kind of, you know, not only find players, but just hone the idea of what the show is as a performance art piece. So when I brought Glank here in New York, um, the first show, the first big show I did was in uh, 2011 at La Mama. And I literally had the audience by the end of the show, it was a 99-seat theater, the entire audience were in lab coats, masks. They had a found object shaker. They were in the show. And I love that vibe. Um, and Glank really started in grad school when I had, we, we used to go to the Cranert Center in the garages and play in that giant echo. And my, my final piece for my grad recital was called Glank, and it was in the garage. I started my recital at Smith Hall, and at the end of the Smith Hall portion, I walked the audience over to Cranert. I cleared it with Cranert, and they blocked off the, you know, there's four big um, garages, basically, and then the four, uh, two levels and four different parking garages. The lowest one nearest the School of Music, they actually blocked that off, so there were no cards in there. It was completely empty, and we played the building. We played the pipes on the wall. We played the heating grates, you know, um, and by the end, I had this huge percussion setup. We were all anonymous. We had our clean room suits on. The audience was part of it. You know, that's, I love including the audience, not just, you know, in, in say, picking up an instrument and playing a shaker, but just feeling they're, like they're fully part of it. I went to Eastern Illinois University. Um, I went to Carmel High School. So um, whenever I was in high school, I got the big marching band BOA experience, which was really the start of my career. I don't say that it starts when I graduated from college. I say it starts all the way back when I was in high school because I had such fantastic teachers, such fantastic arrangers with Richard Saucedo and Michael McIntosh. Um, so I was very blessed, very lucky. And whenever I went to college, um, I got to study under some fantastic teachers. In truth, um, whenever I was at Eastern Illinois, I was there at a time where we had a revolving door of staff members. And that was really lucky and fortunate for me. A lot of folks are kind of afraid of new staff members coming in and out because their, their instruction gets jobbed a little bit. But for me, I found it as an opportunity to learn different skill sets from different teaching styles. And in that time, I had some amazing teachers. Barry Hauser was actually my marching band director and director of bands for a while while I was there. Um, I ended up with two percussion directors, Terrence Mayhew and Jamie Ryan, who both brought their own set of unique talents and skills. Um, I studied uh, broadly, just loosely, uh, recording with Mark Rubel, who is down at Blackbird Studios and was the former owner of Pogo Studios there in Champaign, Illinois. And so one of the things that I really loved about going to Eastern was I got to kind of choose my own adventure. Uh, I took some independent studies that dove me down the rabbit hole of music composition and got to kind of dive down the rabbit hole with independent studies and percussion pedagogy as well with Jamie Ryan. I took two independent studies. One was on ethnomusicology and percussion pedagogy. Um, and the other one was on Bata drumming, Afro-Cuban music, where I studied with a grad student. And that was an amazing opportunity because it allowed me to, we did master classes every week and he had me actually teach a master class on each percussion instrument, write a curriculum and teach a freshman, which as an underclassman, as a bachelor student, that's kind of unreal. 
And that really propelled me. So whenever I graduated from college, I had a set of tools that my peers didn't necessarily have because I had just dove down the rabbit hole a little bit further in specific areas and gotten some more one-on-one instruction with my teachers. And that was very, very helpful. What similarities would you say there are and or differences uh, when approaching electronic music versus acoustic music? And just in general, what is your mindset and your process that you would take when uh, composing in general? Uh, I think there are probably more similarities than there are differences. Uh, and the similarities are all kind of conceptual and creative. And it's, it, both, both processes involve making music and uh, just working with your materials so that they sound the way you want them to sound mm-hmm. and so that they express the things you want them to express. And the differences have to do with the, the sort of quantitative, specific tools that are involved where acoustic composition usually involves um, uh, you know, pen and paper and hand-drawn sketches and, um, you know, maybe a piano as sort of a reference or like a sort of augmentative tool. Um, whereas composing in an electronic medium involves uh, working with a computer with maybe microphones or hardware or software synthesizers. Yeah, but in both cases, you're just creating and capturing and envisioning and just creating a, a set of material that you then sort of assemble. Thinking, think of it in terms of you've got your acoustic instrument and you've got your completely abstract world of electronic sounds. And the, the main, one of the main challenges is finding a way to connect those two aesthetically. Mm-hmm. And w- what I like to do is uh, do a recording session with a performer instrument or instruments that I'm working with and have them kind of very, very uh, systematically go through uh, the capabilities of their instrument, you know, short notes, long notes, loud notes, quiet notes, um, extended techniques, um, and just kind of develop a catalog of sounds. And then that serves as the foundation of what then becomes a much larger branching library of processed sounds. So I, yeah, I just try to come up with creative ways to uh, aesthetically link the unprocessed sound of the acoustic instruments and, uh, and, and sort of the world of abstract electronic sound, which can be anything, you know? Yeah. That's a, that's a great question for Sesame Street too, because there's such a a long process for the, uh, just, just creating one song for the show. And so I'll, I'll kind of go through the steps to talk about that because it relates to how I compose. So the, the scripts, the lyrics come to us, come to composers just strictly in word form. So we just, we get lyrics from the writers. Prior to them, the show starts with curriculum and lessons and entertainment and how we want to teach the kids. So Uh, I'll use Dick Maitland, our sound effects guy. His quote is always, you're always looking at something through the lens of a three-year-old, you know, of the, of the audience. So everything starts with that. The curriculum starts with that. The writer looks at the curriculum and the specific episode they're given. And then the song comes into play and the lyrics are designed around that. The writer may actually have an idea about a style of music or the curriculum may have asked for that too. So, a lot of the stuff that comes to me has has been thought out quite specifically by a team, you know, with curriculum, the writers, uh, all the people that work upstream from me, let's call it. Um, so, you know, I might get a, I might get a song that just says uh, rhythmic, fun dance music, 
<laughs> which actually happened this week. That composition comes to me directly. So I'm creating that at home with whatever library I have, acoustic instruments, electronic instruments, whatever whatever I have in my arsenal, I'll use those things for those compositions. For the show, for the seasonal content, it's different because, again, going back to the writers and the lyrics, I'll get that that script, I'll look at the script as a whole, I'll look at the the lyrics, I'll look at any direction that has come in from the writer saying, hey, I'd love this to be an EDM piece. I'd love this to be uh, a march in 6-8. You know, they, sometimes they get very specific that way, which is actually really good because um, I could come up with 10 different ideas to their one source of direction, right? And then I'll often go to the director of that show too because there's a writer and there's a director. And I'll, I'll sometimes coordinate with the director and say, well, what do you want this field to be? How long should it be? What should the tempo be? And if there's no specifics like that, I'll basically then go back to our head music director, Bill Sherman, and say, okay, well, what are we looking at here? Give me, give me some direction, because otherwise we're just you know, throwing darts you know, at the wall and hoping something will stick. And so, But it, it comes down to lyrics for me, and then... When I when I parse out the lyrics, I'm often thinking of length, and that's one thing that we're you know the show is only a half hour, the street stories are nine minutes approximately, and if there's a if there's a song written into an episode that's say ten stanzas, I have to kind of look at that and go, okay, are we are we at a minute here? We have forty five seconds. What should the tempo be? And also, again, through the lens of a three year old and the ears of a three year old, you have to think about tempo. You have to think about diction for the lyrics and how fast those are going to go by because you want the end goal is always to teach the child and to you know teach first and entertain second i guess um so i'm looking at that and the last thing i do is i think about the puppeteer i'm always kind of in the back of my mind thinking okay how are they going to puppeteer this is that is this because i'm always thinking about the craft of puppeteering the skill of that um that's kind of secondary to what comes everything before that comes you know first what i'm doing as the composer is strictly a demo so i'm just coming up with a very basic you know composition instrument track that's going to accompany the vocals that i produce and in my home studio so i might throw in a, a saxophone section that i know will be replaced you know none of the stuff that i do at home for the season in terms of my my tracks, my percussion, my horn sounds, none of that will be used because that'll all be replaced by our amazing and expert band. Um, and Joe Feidler does all of our arrangements for the band, and he's phenomenal. So what he will do then, once my song has gone through the demo stage and been approved by the producers, um, we'll, you know, I'll record the vocals in the cast. I'll you know, basically assemble that as a rough mix for playback on set. Nine times out of ten, they will lip sync that on set because it's a lot less complex than singing live. I can tell you more about that later. <laughs> um, and then once once uh, the song is done and it's taped, then that film actually goes to our head music director, Bill Sherman, and our arranger, Joe Feidler, and they come up with the final product. If you cut to a film of Elmo brushing his teeth and it sounds hip-hop, well, there might be some electronic percussion in that. But when you're watching a street story, the the underscore that you hear is basically our band, and those are those are real musicians playing real instruments, um, acoustically, you know, some electronic keyboard things enhancing it. But that's a, that's our sound, and, and we're super proud of that because um, it's still we're still recording a real band doing that. In the back of my mind, and I would say this to any composer or arranger, is when you're thinking about 
electronic instruments versus acoustic. Acoustic, you just you you really need to know the the nuts and bolts of that instrument. You know, if I'm writing for a sax section, even though I'm doing it on a keyboard, even though I'm do, I know it's going to be replaced by Joe Feidler's arrangement, I still want to think about where does the tenor tenor sax lie? Where where is that range? Give me a, where's my alto range? So I would say to a composer, know your acoustic instruments like inside and out. Talk to talk to your friends that are musicians. Talk to experts about. Um, even down to things like keys, you know, guitarists, what, what's a good key for a guitarist to play in? You know what I mean? Like chatting about those things can really help you, I think, arrange, record, compose, all those things. Whenever I'm using electronics or I'm doing sound design, my goal is that it accomplishes something that can't be done acoustically. If it can be done acoustically, I'd rather do it acoustically and then use sound reinforcement or amplification. As I say sound reinforcement throughout this, it just simply means miking a player and then amplifying it through the speaker system. Um, I always have a preference to that in terms of a live setting because there's a human element that you can get from that that you just can't get from a sample library on a computer. Now, there are other tools that you can use electronically to enhance and add to uh, what's already there. And that is kind of my philosophy and my goal as a sound designer. Um, if I were to do a transition from a big brass moment to a woodwind moment, how can I have a tail that's electronic to that brass moment that that works with the reverb that's already there acoustically and then helps transition me to the woodwind moment right after that feels a little more organic. A lot of what I do is akin to uh, film score and sound designers. And as you go and you watch good film score, some of my favorite, um, John Powell is someone that I'm studying right now. He did How to Train Your Dragon, all of those. And you listen to his music and there are electronic elements, but they just kind of sit in the mix comfortably. They don't jump out at you. They just enhance the acoustic music that's there. And that's kind of my goal with everything that I do. And as I go back to sound reinforcement, um, it's really important that we're not just microphoning and turning the volume up. What we're trying to do is amplify the wind players on the field in a way that they can play with a more characteristic concert sound uh, and it reached the audience instead of them having to overblow their instrument and play with poor technique to accomplish the sound that's going to reach the audience. Now, from an overall, like, holistic perspective, what are some limitations, difficulties that any, a composer, a performer, or a conductor might encounter when trying to perform any of these pieces? So... Performers who are approaching uh, electroacoustic music for the first time, one of the main difficulties they might encounter has to do with just simply setting up the computer program, uh, you know, downloading and using the software and, uh, you know, whether, because, you know, this is, most of the time it's, it's, it's not going to be, um, if, if it's an interactive piece, it's not, it, it, it involves something more than just, you know, um, just downloading an audio file and, and playing it in, in whatever your media player of choice is, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to involve some sort of specialized computer language. Um, and it just takes some time to, you know, whenever you're dealing with new software, 
um, you know, ho hopefully the composer has streamlined the process as much as possible with some, some sort of instructions. Um, but it can be challenging it, it just, just because it's such a, a specialized piece of software. So mm -hmm. that and also the hardware setup, if you've never sort of used an audio interface or a condenser microphone or things like that, it's just, um, it's very easy for people like me to forget how uh, new of an experience that is for performers who have been just playing their instrument, but never actually touching sort of technology. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's that's a that's one main challenge. Uh, it's kind of more of a technical setup challenge. But as far as performing and rehearsing uh, with fixed media pieces, uh, synchronization can be a real challenge. Uh, if a fixed media piece is, is just sort of like one one long audio file that you uh, are playing playing along with, basically, <laughs> timing can be an issue, especially if it's um, in metronome or click track or clock for you to follow there are, it's kind of rare these days but there are a few pieces still which are just sort of fixed media and there's a score with sort of abstract shapes that show you your relationship you the performer your relationship to the electronic sounds and it just can take a more rehearsal than expected and a different flavor of rehearsal where you really have to kind of memorize or internalize the electronic sounds in order to really play along with it effectively so, mm -hmm. so timing and synchronization can be an issue and then also balance can be an issue uh, where, I mean, you know, how you're rehearsing, if you're rehearsing on headphones or on like little crappy speakers or something like that, <laughs> yeah. that can be very different from when you actually get to a performance venue and you've got an engineer who's setting up a professional sound system with like an onstage monitor and things like that. So there's just a lot of variables um, that, that come into play that you might not anticipate. And then I wrote a, a band in 2015, which was part of my doctoral research at UT Austin. Um, and so, I mean, we, you know, we, we, we can, we can talk at length or we can, I can just yeah. sort of plug it real quick, but I, it's that, that piece sort of represents uh, a culmination of ideas. In fact, I wanted to write a band and electronics piece at the end of my master's program. Uh, and I was talked out of it by my advisors, I think, because they, they felt that it was just kind of a, a an enormous project, which, and you know, for that to be the first piece with electronics I ever write, I think it would have been overwhelming yeah, uh, but I had kept it in mind and wrote you know a variety of acoustic and electroacoustic music throughout my doctoral studies, and then at the end, my my dissertation project focused on composing a piece for band and electronics that overcame a lot of what I saw as the main challenges and obstacles. And in particular, one of those was uh, synchronizing the band with the electronics. So most of the pieces for band, uh, at least the ones that I'm familiar with, are fixed media, and that's just. A, I mean, it's, sometimes it's a challenge to get you know, a, a band to sort of play in with each other, yeah. hear each other. But then if you've also got a, a very rigid electronic part, which is going to be exactly the same duration and tempo every time. And the way, the way I approached that challenge was that I, I, I scored the piece for wind ensemble and one laptop player. And so they've just got a, a basic laptop. I could have done this with a MIDI controller, but I figured I can take out as many, as many complications as I can. And so that the alphanumeric keys on the keyboard are, are, are treated sort of like notes on a MIDI keyboard where the, that, that player is following a score and following the conductor, you know, reading off the score and they've got, you know, letters, A, S, D, F, G, H, et cetera. And, and they're sort of, you know, uh, and, and sort of notated metrically. So they know when to press certain keys to make certain sounds happen. And so in a way it's kind of fixed media, but I've broken it up into lots yeah. of little fixed media moments. So it's easier to find checkpoints to readjust the media and the band together. That's right. If you hit something a little too early, it's not going to be early for the rest of the piece. You just sort of catch back up at the next checkpoint. And another, another challenge that, that, that comes with fixed media and band is that, there, for example, if, if it's a fixed media piece and there's some long crescendo that ends very suddenly, 
uh, that's a difficult moment to synchronize, you know, in, in some cases. Where mm-hmm. if you have the opposite gesture where it starts with a bang and then fades out, that's, that's pretty easy. You just sort of conduct the downbeat, get everyone, you know, to in sync with the, with the fixed media. But uh, I, I was having a lot of trouble with these crescendos that, where the electronics line up with, with, the, uh, with the band. And what I did is I, I had some of the keys on the keyboard act like sort of on-off buttons. So you press the key down and hold it, and it will crescendo sort of 40% of the way or so. Uh, so, you know, it gives the illusion of a constant crescendo. And as long as you time it reasonably well, when you release the key, that's what triggers the last sort of oh, wow. half second yeah. of crescendo. So it allows you to have some flexibility with lining up the end of the gesture with the band. Thinking about Glank acoustically, electronically, um, I, I, you know, the toughest thing for me is the limitations of speakers <laughs> when you're composing, because... You know, you might have this idea in your head of, okay, I want this ensemble to play this riff, or I want six players to do this. And as you're writing it, you're writing it on paper, you can hear it in your head, but then when you try and recreate it or even come up with a demo version of it in Pro Tools, Logic, what have you, it's the speakers that are ultimately producing that sound, and that can be very limiting, depending on what system you have. You, you might have headphones that just don't produce that low end, uh, you might not have a sub hooked up to your your studio system, so you might not hearing not, but you might not be hearing a lot of the low end stuff. Yeah, so that's that can be limiting to a certain factor, um, especially if you're trying to get the uh, that idea across to an audience just with that pre recorded material. So the thing that I, t- I tell people is it's just like. Um band directing. Uh, we as band directors, when we graduate with our undergrad, are woefully unprepared to teach all of the different instruments. Yeah, we can read books. Yeah, we can try instruments. But really in those first eight years where you hear a problem in your band and you don't know how to fix it, and then you experiment and then you find it, and then you have that tool in your toolbox from then on. It's the same thing electronically. When you have a problem, um, you start looking for resources to solve that problem, and you try and find someone that knows more than you do to act as a mentor to guide you in those moments. It's the same with sound. So I don't know how to set up a microphone. Well, I bet I know somebody that does, and if I don't, I bet I can go on YouTube, and I bet I can search there. Here's what I would say. Um, On YouTube, there are a lot of really good resources from the manufacturers themselves. They want you to get the best sound possible with their product because that's marketing for them. And so if you go on to Audio-Technica's page on YouTube, you can find and you can Google how to mic a trumpet with a microphone and it'll immediately pop up with, you know, this is where mic placement should go. This is the microphone you should use. And they're trying to sell you a product, but in that process, you just learned exactly how to position a microphone. And now you have, you know, a rabbit hole to to jump down, do your research and then reach out to somebody that, you know, um, that you trust, that's going to offer you something. So you want somebody that you can, can depend on that's going to, offer you advice that's honest. It's like knowing a mechanic. Um, If you take your car to the mechanic and the mechanic says, yep, that's going to be $2,000. And you're like, "Uh, okay, I've got to trust you. Uh, I don't have any other choice. Um, It's much better when you know a mechanic and you say, hey, how much should brakes cost? He's like, eh, 400 bucks. 
And it's like, oh, that guy just tried to charge me 900 bucks. Okay. Or you find out the opposite, which is like, well, that guy offered to do it for $200. He's like, stay away from that guy. You need to go somewhere and get better bricks or you're going to be going down the road uh, and not being able to stop. It's the same with electronics. You know, um, it's really important that you've got somebody that you can rely on to know because especially in electronics, before you know it, you're going to rack up a bill of $50,000 and you probably could have accomplished the same thing for $10,000. Time. Time is the biggest one because if you're using tracks that are tempo synced, now you've introduced a um, a new variable into the mix that the performers have to be aware of and it impacts their muscle memory. Basically, if you're a performing musician today, you'd better you'd better know how to use electronics because if you plan on playing for a musical, you're going to have an Ableton Live or a main stage rig that's got to click all the way through and you have to follow it exactly because all of the microphones are designed to go on and off at specific times. All of the lights are mapped to specific moments. The curtain goes down. All of that stuff is automated now. And so as a performer, if you're introducing that to an ensemble for the first time, you can't just show up and expect them to know how to do that stuff. You have to practice that as part of the process. So if you're performing, um, music has been around forever, uh, performing with tape. And the whole idea is, Um, If you're performing a piece with tape, you have to do it with tape every single time. You can't try and just add that in at the last moment or it's not going to work. Let's say I'm playing at Illinois Superstate and I want to use a Celeste. Um, It's very important that you know exactly where all the volumes are at and you've dialed in the tone and you've gotten in an auditorium and you've moved yourself back and you've listened to what it sounds like blending with an ensemble because electronics will stick out of an ensemble in the exact same way as any acoustic instrument will. The the difference is that electronic instrument can't listen and adjust to what it's hearing. And so you kind of have to balance the band to that electronic device and vice versa and play around with it. Um, So I would say that would be the greatest thing. You treat that electronic device like it's another performer in the ensemble and you have to balance and listen to the tone and get back a little bit, just like anything else. The last bit of that is making sure that your speaker is pointed in a consistent direction every single time, which for me... Uh, is straightforward. So if we're in a concert band setting and I have a Celeste that's being used that's electronic and I've got a 12-inch speaker there, I want to point that speaker directly straight forward so that the sound is traveling evenly dispersed across the entire audience instead of pointing it at the conductor. That's a mistake that lots of groups make where they'll point the speaker at the conductor because that's what the conductor's used to hearing. Um, And now it's just a monitor for the conductor and half of the audience is getting blown out and half the audience can't hear anything at all. And the judges don't even know there is a Celeste. For this next question, where do you see the integration of electronics and technology with music and live performance going forward in the future? Yeah, pieces, I think pieces with interactive elements are tend to be more exciting than fixed media pieces. That's kind of a broad generalization, which is going to have exceptions. Uh, but I, I think, yeah, pieces with interactive elements, it's just, you, you know, there's a, there's a, there's an exciting live element where you're sort of seeing the piece happen live and, and, uh, you know, the, the sounds of the instruments are in some way influencing or, uh, uh, affecting the electronic sound. 
I, um, I mean, perhaps we'll see more pieces with, um, uh, interactive multimedia. So not just sound, but also video, which is somehow incorporated into the performance or, uh, maybe, maybe more pieces which are, are sort of interactive in terms of sound and also have performers spaced around the performance space, not just on stage or things which rely on it in some way. Maybe people are somehow using their phones to, to control the electronics or like some sort of networked media. So a lot of interesting things to consider. Um, it's just, um, I think it tends to be the case that the larger the ensemble you're working with in terms of composing forces, mm -hmm. it just, it just, the logistics get more and more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely understandable. And I guess we'll just have to wait and see what comes out of this and what. Wow. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny you say that because I just saw, even though Coachella was canceled, I saw that there was going to be the first hologram performance at Coachella. And it's this uh, Japanese hologram that, that gets people, that, that tens of thousands of people go to these shows to see this hologram performer. Um, I, you know, as an old school uh, analog kind of band person, I don't know if I could <laughs> enjoy that. I think it would be fun as like an EDM kind of a thing because the videos I've seen of the hologram are like people with with LED sticks, like light sticks, and and they're just grooving it. If they're if they're just digging it, um, yeah. I mean, I would love, from my perspective as a as a composer for a performance art piece, and I, I had thought about this years ago with people sitting in the seats what they could do drumming wise and how they could be part of the show beyond just having a shaker in their hand and i always thought about those little toy drum pads that came out years ago where you know you could you could actually play them what if those were on the backs of every seat and every perform every audience member had a pair of little plastic sticks and they were playing like a little toy pad thing but all that was fed through a pa and they could hear the audience could truly hear what they are performing. It's different, you know, when you're holding a shaker, what I love about the immersion and collective experience of that is that sound of 99 shakers plus our 10 performers, you know, over 100 shakers in a room just sounds so cool to me. And it's something that I don't think anybody in that audience has ever experienced. And it's just a one little simple thing. Shakers, 99 people, we're, we're all doing the same groove. The lights are down, the, the LEDs are cool. There's, there's some video projection going on, which is another part of my show that I love to do and, and include is video projection. Um, yeah, I guess the, the future would be taking that interaction to another level. And maybe it's video, maybe it's, it's uh, VR goggles and everybody's looking at some bizarre collective 3D video projection thing that I've included in the show. Um, so a lot of what we do is dictated by judging, unfortunately and fortunately. So we kind of have a body of judges that kind of dictate what's going to be rewarded and what's not going to be rewarded. And so as there are shifts and trends of judging and what's rewarded, you're going to see shifts in what's done. So um, three or four years back, uh, drum corps started using shotgun microphones. And with that, the group sounded louder. And so um, when a group sounds louder, it is misconstrued as quality. One thing that you know as a sound engineer is louder always sounds better to our ears. It's just it's a neurological problem that we have. And so it's really important for us as sound engineers when we're adding effects to a channel, if it's boosting the volume, we turn that volume down and we do an A-B with the volume at exactly the same level. 
Well, um, the judges caught on to that and realized, okay, louder is not better. And so we need to make sure that we're really listening for the transparent 3D-ness in the sound there. And so that's where you start to see groups start to bring out the line arrays. So line arrays are speakers, um, just like any other speaker that you've seen, but they, the physics behind them operates a little differently. And what it does is it adapts and adjusts for um, different arenas, uh, different venues that you're performing in, and they're highly adjustable. So think of it as instead of having two really, really large 15-inch speakers, you could have 18 six-inch speakers. And with that 18, the set of 18 six-inch speakers, um, you can disperse sound waves in a more targeted way. And so they don't have to turn up as loud for it to reach the audience member. And so with that, uh, the sound is much more clear and much more transparent. And so that's kind of the direction that everyone's headed right now. So if you're asking me this question at a really hard time to answer that because we're changing right now. If you'd asked me three years ago, I would tell you, you know, uh, we're going to have more samples. But now I, I see us using less uh, electronic samples and more acoustic miking so that it sounds um, more lifelike to the audience members. Um, with that, I think you're going to see better sounding groups, honestly, because as we get more educated and as we start to amplify in a better way, I think that the audience member is going to have a better experience than sitting on the 10-yard line or the 20-yard line. Um, whereas before, we would turn our speakers all the way up and point them at the judges, and if you were in that 100 level, it was just like tough luck. Well, with these line arrays, you can cater the sound depending on where you're seated. And that's the technology that's already in all these sports arenas. Anytime you go to a, a large venue, uh, that's kind of the standard to begin with. And now you're finally starting to see these marching groups start to include them. It's very expensive. It's really important that we consider um, every dollar that we spend on props, every dollar that we spend on uniforms, every dollar that we spend on an electronic system is money that is not going to be spent educating the kids. I'd really like to thank you for listening to this episode of One More Time, a Win Band podcast. If you'd like to follow up with any of our guests, feel free to visit their respective websites at elifieldsteel.com, paulrudolphmusic.com, and also for his percussion ensemble, Glank, that's G-L-A-N-K, visit glankglankglank.com. And finally, for Matthew Black, feel free to visit matthewblackmedia.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do take a moment to share it on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or whichever social media platform to help more people listen to and enjoy the show. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, you can follow us on Facebook, join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands, or find us on Twitter at Illinois bands. You can always check out our website for more information at www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producers of the podcast are Dr. Anthony Messina and Stephen Cohn. This episode was produced, hosted, and recorded and mixed by myself, Marcelo Champion. Of course, none of this would be possible without Illinois Bands faculty, Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Elizabeth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is a part of the School of Music here at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. 
finally, to wrap things up here, I'd like to send another big thank you to Scott Schwartz, Dr. Nicholas Waldron, Dr. Eli Fieldsteel, Paul Rudolph, and Matthew Black for their contributions to this episode. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of One More Time, a Windband Podcast. <laughs>